If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Sephora, and Nike. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Welcome back to Where Did You Get This Number? We continue with our look at the anniversary of the moon landing. I am joined once again by Lenny Steinhorn, American University of CBS News, and historian, which is especially important as we look back and look forward on things. Lenny, how are you? I'm well. It's an interesting time to look back 50 years and relive the sense of awe that so many of us experienced back then. I saw the moon landing on a small black and white television, and you could see those shadows walking on the moon. It was absolutely breathtaking, almost beyond the belief, but it spoke to who we were as a country, and that was exhilarating for my generation. Well, in fact, we asked on our last poll, and I just just was talking with you before we started uh, taping this about it, we asked people, have you ever seen anything that made you as proud as that? And for a majority of older Americans who ostensibly would remember it, they said, no, they they haven't. And in fact, 45% of all Americans said that there hasn't been an event that would have made them as proud as the moon landing. So it still has that resonance. It still has that effect on Americans. Yeah, and you have to go back and think about how John Kennedy framed it when he announced our attempt to land somebody on the moon in September of 1962 at a Rice University speech. And here's what he said. He said, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And what he did is he captured a nation that explored frontiers, tackled big challenges, wanted to solve problems. After all, his administration was named the New Frontier. And what he articulated was how space, science, technology were and would become the frontiers of modern life. And I think that captivated so many people at that moment in time. What's interesting to me is if you look back in the years before that and even into the 60s, it was not quite as unified, for lack of a better word, as it seems to be once the achievement succeeds. I mean, to wit, you go back to the late 40s and the Gallup poll asked people if they think they'll make it to the moon in the next 50 years and only 15 percent thought yes. And then you get into the 60s when the Gallup poll asked, should Congress approve 
a seven to nine billion dollar package to try to get people to the moon. And it was split. It was 42. Yes. 46. No. So it wasn't like the nation was instantly all in on this idea of, hey, we've got to get to the moon. What is it in your read of history that really changed that equation? Well, I think there are a number of things. There was a sense of achieving something that nobody thought was possible. Look, when we united during World War II to fight the greatest tyranny known to humankind, we poured all of our resources into protecting, preserving, and saving democracy. And I think there was that sense of pride, but also a sense of exhaustion that we had poured so much of our energy and soul into that. Were we ready for something new? But the minute you saw our astronauts go into space... The minute you saw these images of John Glenn circling the globe, I mean, I myself remember having these little 45 um, RPM records that had all about John Glenn and his experience and the countdown and, and, and everything like that. It was inspiring for a young person and inspiring for a nation. So once we got that sense of possibility that it could happen, that it might happen, that it's possible, that we may achieve it, I think more and more people began to buy into it as something larger than life. And also couple that with this. Um, The 60s was a decade of incredible turmoil. You know, you had a lot of dissension, a lot of polarization. You had the Vietnam War tearing our country apart. This was one thing that that could unite every American. And in that sense, people were looking forward to that as something that was a relief from the things that were pitting each other against ourselves. I think that you and I have talked in the past about this idea of trust in institutions, of even trust in government. And I wonder as a backdrop for it, whether or not the idea that it was a NASA program, a government program that was trying to accomplish and ultimately did accomplish these things on behalf of the country, and certainly a little bit different from today, where a lot of people feel like it should be a public and private partnership and there are private entities trying to get into space but with that as a backdrop do you feel like it's there's a difference there in the fact that it was a government enterprise trying to get to the moon i think that's a big big issue because when you look at the surveys that were taken in 1964 76 percent of americans said they trusted government all or most of the time If you tried to sell that 76% number today, it would be laughed at on late-night comedy. Uh, I can assure you it is lower. (laughs) Right. It's it's 20% in that range today. And I think the funny thing is we associated problem-solving and innovation and boldness with government because we marshaled our resources in World War II. So we associated all of that with our collective will, not with individual will. That's changed right now. Now we think that it's the individual entrepreneur who's bold and innovative, not government. The uh, tech that we celebrate today, yeah, it comes from the person who literally started the company in their basement, the person who, you know, invented a new kind of software, or on their college campus or, you know, and and created this technology that we all use. And right, it comes from private business, whether it's your cell phone um, of a particular brand, whether it's the kind of television that you like to watch or video game that you play, etc. The things that we enjoy all come from companies that we that we celebrate. Yeah, and it's funny because, uh, as you say, young people flock to these tech industries, seeing them as the problem solvers and the agents of change. And I think it's, you know, so different from what it was before, but we can't forget 
that this sort of moonshot, this moon race, actually gave us the miniaturization of technology that led to these cell phones and all of this technology that we appreciate today. So to some extent, we are still living with the legacy of the moon landing. We just don't recognize it. And we associate so many of those advances with the private sector, with those couple of folks and you know who started a business in a garage, and not with a government and united purpose that got somebody on the moon. I think about the idea that people say, Science still solves problems in their lives. In fact, 90 percent of people in polls think that science has solved problems in their lives. And then on top of that, 90 odd percent are proud of the U.S.'s scientific achievements. But just look, you've written speeches as well as as studied history. Just in terms of language, we walk around and people will say, oh, you know, we could put a man on the moon. Why can't we do X? We could put a man, put on on the moon. And why can't we do Y? It becomes this benchmark for the country and has stood up as such. But all the neat things that have come since, the the Internet, for one, um, the cell phone, for another, all the cool things, we don't take them as benchmarks. Why do you think that is? Well, I think we've transformed from that era in the 60s with such a great deal of trust in government in which people really felt that the whole was greater than the sum of the individual Americans And now we almost think that the sum of the individual Americans is greater than the whole. We don't look at our collective effort as something important. All of these experiences that people have today, they're not collective. They're not universal. People don't watch the same news. They don't follow the same media. Everything's individualized and personalized. Young people no longer listen to music together. They all have earbuds in and listen to their own things. We don't have those shared experiences that bring us together. So we now think that the best way to deal with it is through our individualized lives. And look, you even equate that to war. I mean, World War II, we were united. There was a common purpose. Every family was involved. Now every war we fight is, you know, is being fought by a small slice of our population, and it's barely noticed by the majority except for holidays when we praise our soldiers and veterans. So that sense of collective, the whole being greater than the sum of the individuals, I think we sort of lost that as a country. And the question is, can we regain that at any point in time beyond a simple tragedy? But I don't know. Isn't the sense of America that the individual spirit and the individual unleashed or allowed to be free to innovate, to create, that's what drives things forward? You know, in terms of technology or innovation or business, that might well be the case. And maybe the moon landing is a bit of a one off in that context. Whereas the national viewing experience that you describe, where everybody sits around a television set and watches one thing, that's certainly changed. Perhaps, you know, also as a result of technology. But the idea, as you say, that everybody participates in the same thing at the same time live, that's something that's certainly changed as well. And that has an imprint on how people digest an event. I think we there's a sort of pendulum shift back and forth between celebrating the individual and the entrepreneur and the business person as the source of innovation and creation and energy in our society. But at other times, we celebrate the collective, the whole, what government does. Well, if you think about this from a bottom-up perspective or an individual up to the larger perspective, the way a pollster often does People do have a need both to feel a part of something larger than themselves, but also to feel as though they themselves are empowered. 
and that they themselves can make what they will uh, out of their lives. And I look at what we see today and I wonder, is there something out there that the U.S. is trying to achieve or that industry is trying to to achieve, which seems like it's the next thing 50 years from now? People, historians will look back and go, yeah, that was the next moment. That was the next time people felt like we achieved something as a country. Well, I think in our conversation earlier, you were saying how, you know, the Internet, it's experienced individually, yet it's one of the most most breathtaking inventions in human history. It's given people access to knowledge and information and social networks that we never would have thought imaginable years ago. It would have been science fiction to think this way. Um, But it's experienced at an individual level. So there's become a disconnect between this incredible sort of surge of an innovation that was created in large part initially through the federal government um, that the private sector then took on and, and, and helped to liberate. But this incredible surge of innovation, but it's experienced individually. And the question then becomes, we will continue to innovate. Science will continue to explore new frontiers. Technology will continue to give us advances. But is there a way that we will begin to share it collectively rather than individually? And again, I'm not altogether sure we will have those experiences. But there are times where we will celebrate our, you know, sort of, principles and freedoms and ideals of the country. You go back to the uh, 1976 bicentennial. The country was united at that moment in time. We were expressing a sense of love and devotion to who we are and what our country stood for. So it's perfectly possible that in seven years, when we reach 250 years, we might have that national celebration, which reminds us who we are and restores that sense of pride in the collective and the sense of purpose of our country. But again, I'm not altogether sure that technology will allow that because it's become so individualized. 22% of Americans think that people will live in space permanently in their lifetime. Now, it's a little bit higher among people who are younger. Obviously, they have a longer horizon in which to see that, which for me echoes a little bit of that low number who many years before the moon landing ever thought that that could be done. And one component of this might be that it has to be a bit surprising. There are these sort of, you know, evolutionary incremental upgrades to a lot of the technology that we see. Our cars go a little bit faster. Our computers get a little bit faster. But the big thing that surprises people that says, oh, I didn't think we could really do that. And then we do it. I think that's a big component of it as well. That's the thing that might make a more lasting imprint because it has that element of surprise to it. Yeah, it does have that element of surprise, but then we very quickly take that surprise for granted. When you think about pulling the cell phone out of your pocket, you realize you have a computer that had the power of an entire room of computers 50 years ago. Uh, It's all in our hands. We take it for granted. We take a lot of these advances for granted because we use them every day. And I just get frustrated. I've only got like four, two bars. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, right. Come on, why doesn't this thing? I'm paying for this. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> My Wi-Fi is not working. It's a crisis, yeah. right? Exactly. Um, but, you know, the thing about the space race that's so interesting, it also took place in the context of a particular era, the Cold War. Yeah. And space became a metaphor for preeminence in the world, for national pride. So when the Soviet Union sort of blasted off, blasted off its Sputnik satellite in 1957, all of a sudden we said, oh, my gosh, they're ahead of us. We have to start pouring money into science and technology and education. And we saw this incredible sort of change in our, in our country 
about how we prepare people to live in this modern world driven by science and technology. Then you had the Russians, the Soviets, put Yuri Gregarian as the first man in space on April 12, 1961, five months and a year before John Kennedy's speech uh, where he talked about going to the moon. This became a metaphor for preeminence in the world. And once we got there on the moon, all of a sudden, we became preeminent. There's the story of the uh, uh, Soviet physicist and dissident Andrei Sakharov, who in 1970, with a couple of others, issued an open letter to the Soviet government calling for democratization in the Soviet Union and citing the moon landing as evidence of the superiority of democracy. That's fantastic. That is fascinating. Um, and, you know, today... I look and they, a third of Americans say they feel the space program has accomplished less than they'd expected. I'm not sure what their expectations were, but, you know, we've talked about this. A lot of the technology that we use, some of which you mentioned, comes out of the space program. It was invented or developed to help space research, space travel, and now it's part of our day-to-day lives. Yes, again, you go for a CAT scan, that was used to find imperfections in space components. You talk about microelectronics, robotics, satellites, but you also think about things we use every day. All those people who sleep on memory foam mattresses, thank you, space race. Smoke detectors, insulation, scratch-resistant lenses, so much technology emerged from the government investment and research and development in the space race that went beyond the sense of national pride of getting people on the moon. We continue to live with that, but once again, we take these advances for granted. And I think one of the things that we have to be able to rediscover in our country is a sense of awe for what we've accomplished. I don't know, the memory foam mattress is a pretty cool thing. Yes, exactly. There you go. You have the the sense of awe every time you go to sleep at night. Democracy is better (laughs) (laughs) thanks to the memory foam mattress. That's, you know, it could be kind of true. (laughs) Well, I think it's also a matter of shaping people's perspective. One of the things that came out of the space program I was just reading about were the photographs and seeing the Earth from afar for really the first time. And when people got that sense, it, it literally changed their perspective on the world. And so one of the, the other components of this could be what changes the way people think about where they live and who they are and, not, and of course, what humanity can achieve or what it can do. And that's the thing I think people are sort of looking for as well as we, uh, as we go forward. Yeah, you have the Hubble telescope sort of changing our sense of our place in the universe. But those images from the moon of the Earth, they showed up everywhere. They showed up on countercultural documents like that legendary Whole Earth catalog. There was a sense that we The one that inspired, allegedly uh, inspired Steve Jobs. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And you could see, you know, how we imagine the world so differently from what we see from the Earth outward because we saw this small little globe from a distance and we sort of grasped how fragile it could be. And arguably, you could say that those images coming from the moon, seeing the earth, seeing what it is and how sort of small and almost isolated it is in space gave us a greater sense of how to protect the earth and protect the planet and arguably had a big impact on the growth of the environmental movement because people understood the earth as something whole and not something they're simply standing on and taking for granted. Well, next time we will be back to more terrestrial pursuits and probably political fights as well.
well, but for this moment in time, looking back on that historic achievement, this has been an absolute blast and a learning experience for looking forward. So, Lenny, as always, I appreciate the conversation, man. This is always fun. All right. I'll see you back here next time. I'll see all of you. Thank you, thank you for listening. Uh, to everybody here at CBS News Radio, to my wonderful triple producer, Emily Pang, who's about to head off on vacation as we tape this. Got that faraway look on his eyes, speaking of distance and gazing out on the uh, on the horizon. So we wish him a great vacation. And when he's back and we're back, uh, we will be back with the next episode next week. Uh, until then, I'm Anthony Salvanto for CBS News. And where did you get this number? Thanks for listening.